Hi everyone, welcome to uh, episode 27 of Sparks of Madness, and this episode reaches you after a six-month gap. Um, the last episodes of this podcast were released in November 2021, and that was after a big break as well. The reason for this break was, or is because of my own mental health, ironically. Um, so this is a podcast about comedians discussing how comedy and their mental health issues kind of overlap, into interact, whatever, and. Um, I stopped doing this podcast because I had my own mental health blip. So for the first time in over a decade, I'm back on antidepressants. Um, and I've been back on them. We're now in May. And I started taking them over the Christmas break. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm well underway with that treatment now. And, and I have to say that my experience of the mental health provision from the NHS now compared to 12 years ago is much, much improved. So well done, NHS. In trying times, you are improving in that respect. And my GP has been excellent. Anyway, moving on. Um, why now? Why relaunch or why do a new episode now? Uh, because somebody I have asked in the past to come and do an episode or to record an episode with me um, ha- was resistant to it initially, Um but has uh, proactively contacted me and said, are you still doing your podcast? I'd love to do it. Um, Mainly because they've got something to promote, but that's how it works. That's fine. So my guest for this episode is the wonderful Meryl O'Rourke, who is um, someone that if you haven't heard of, you probably will recognise some of their work if you're a fan of comedy. So Meryl has um, worked with uh, Frankie Boyle for over a decade, writing for him, uh, for his TV shows and supporting him on tour. Uh, Frankie describes her as inspiringly funny. Uh, Meryl's been on the in the comedy game, if you like, for a couple of decades now and and is one of the generation of female comedians who who have maybe paved the way for the very many female comedians who now are getting the exposure they deserve. Um, Meryl deserves to be better known, in my opinion. She's someone I have a huge comedy crush on. Um, so uh, she, uh, we talk about that, actually, in, in this podcast. She's someone that, that I really admire the work of. She's been something of a mentor for me. She runs uh, comedy writing courses. And as she's a BAFTA-nominated writer, or her shows that she's written on have been BAFTA-nominated, it feels appropriate to learn from someone with that pedigree. Um, and... Um, She's also someone with lots and lots of opinions. So actually what this podcast is, we, we sort of skirt around mental health in a way and we talk about the issues that maybe outside of comedy and within comedy affect her mental health without explicitly really discussing it until quite towards the end. Um, so uh, there's loads of opinion in here, which is gives you a real flavour for what drives Meryl. Um, she does have a, a special landing on the comedy streaming service next up on the 10th of June. It's called Vanilla. It's a show I've seen twice in, in different stages of its development, and I think it's superb. Um, I think anyone with teenage daughters should watch it with their teenage daughters. That's my intention. Uh, next up is only, I think, a couple of quid a month, only two quid a month, and it's well worth it. Loads of great content on there, um, in now, including Meryl. So um, I know this is a waffly introduction, but I've missed doing this, so sod it. Um, the other thing to say is um, we initially were going to record this on the usual platform that I used to record, but for some reason the tech wasn't playing ball, and Meryl had a limited amount of time to do it. So we moved to good old Zoom, but um, since lockdowns eased, Zoom have changed their business model. So actually, at one point during the podcast, um, there is a slight break where we ran out of time and had to do another episode. And the other thing is, the sound quality isn't as good because it's on Zoom. So I've done my best to clean it up, um, but 
do stick with it. There's loads in here. We talk about Jimmy Carr. We talk about Frankie Boyle. We talk about the Me Too movement. We talk about um, Julia Hartley Brewer's recent um, sort of tweet um, that blew up about whether or not it's okay to laugh at jokes about rape on stage. And you might be interested to hear perhaps an unexpected viewpoint if you don't know Meryl's work already. So give it a listen. I think it's a really good episode. Sorry for the waffly intro. Um, and uh, look after your own mental health, folks. Uh, that's why there's been a break, and I'm glad to be back. Cheers. Great, welcome back to Sparks of Madness, um, and I'm delighted that today my guest is the, the fantastic Meryl O'Rourke. Hi Meryl, how are you? Hello, I have a cold, so I apologise if I have to stop. In fact, you were just saying, if there's anything that we touch on that's mentally worrying and we have to stop, you'll stop, but it's more like there will be a torrid of snot now and then where I have to <laughs> ask you to stop so I can blow my nose very, very loudly. That's fine. On my end of Likely. things, I don't have a cold, but I do have a dog who can be a bit of a prick. So oh, okay, it's lovely. But if anyone walks past the house or the door goes or whatever, you might hear a, a really gobby dog. So yeah. we'll, you know, we've got we've all got our crosses to bear. That's the dog's um, job. Yeah. Or is so, it's not my nose's job to stop me from speaking properly? No, so. it's just a pain in the ass, isn't it? My nose um, is being more of a prick than your dog is. <laughs> so um, I suppose. I'm really, A, I'm really pleased that you're doing this because yeah. I asked you ages ago and you were like, I don't like talking about stuff, um, which is weird because you're one of the most talky people I've experienced, <laughs> I think. You, you love talking about stuff, but as long as it's on your terms, I suppose. 100%. Um, yeah, which I understand. Um, but um, for me, the reason why I was really pleased to have you on is, and this is, I'll get the, I'll get the smoke blowing up your ass out of the way. <laughs> okay. Um, there's not many people when it comes. I've, I've been doing comedy since 2018. There's not. There's very few people in the industry I've come across who I want everyone's approval, but the people who's I kind of crave the approval of. You're yeah. one of a very small few, I think, because of the interactions we've had over the last few years, where your approval really matters to me. Okay. And I wondered whether someone. Are like you like who, me for your own benefit? Absolutely. Don't Don't like me in and of myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Only like that, me. If I like you. <laughs> no, 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 let's get that clear. But that, so I'll give you an example. So the people who, who I really care what they think, like, there's my drama teacher from high school. Okay. Who, uh, a guy called Gordon Scammell, who's a miserable old Welsh curmudgeonly bastard. But if he says, well done, he means it. And it makes you feel 10 feet tall because I go back to being a teenager and needing that sort of validation. There's um, James, Jim Bays, James Bays, who was the guy that kind of took me through comedy at the start. We did a course okay. that he led. And so oh, I yeah. really care about his approval. Um, Alan I care about his approval as well, but that's because he's hot. <laughs> he's really hot. It's really fucking annoying. <laughs> um, yeah, but do you uh, know how he, he used to not be hot? So yeah, he's got that very attractive thing of being ridiculously hot, but having the psyche of someone who's not ridiculously hot, yeah, which yeah, of course yeah. makes him even hotter. Even hotter. Um, Alan Cochran was my favourite sort of touring comic before I started comedy. Okay. And I haven't, I've gigged with him now and I haven't had his approval. So that hurts. See, now we're going right, to have to talk yeah. about whether Alan's hot. Otherwise, Alan might get upset. <laughs> he's, he's probably hot ish. 
I'd put him he, in the hot adjacent area. He has children, so he's he's been actively hot. Yeah, um, and then and then there's you because uh, so the first time I met you, <laughs> sorry, I'll get off this now. <laughs> absolute scorcher, like the sun, the surface <laughs> of the sun. Um, but no, the first time I met you was at a really tiny gig in Leeds at Skits and Giggles, as it was, which was run by a lass called Stacey Miller, who sadly doesn't seem to be doing comedy anymore. But um, you were were working through some material, and you gave me a bollocking because I took a photograph from the audience. Oh, and I don't you were like that. you should know better because you're an act, and I was like, but I'm an open spot act. We all take photos <laughs> of each other all the fucking time, and it was like, and uh, but then I saw your show, and it was like, wow. Um, okay. And then we've gigged together and stuff since then, and you did a writing course that I did. So for some reason, approval from other people is nice, but also if they don't approve of you, you go like, well, fuck them. But for some reason, I've craved your approval, and it matters. So thank you for doing this. If it's okay. then shit, I'm broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I am now just using you because I need promo material because my, 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 my show is coming out on a, on a streaming channel. So yeah, I'm completely so using and away. abusing you. It's, it's not special. No, no, absolutely not. But I'm gonna And you let me abuse you, which which always almost feels worse. So I'll say to you, I need to do a show up north. Have you got a show? And you'll go, Yes, I'll put one on yeah. specially. And I'm like, oh Pretty god, much. I'm I'm abusing Graham again. That's fine. I live for the abuse. It's not a problem. <laughs> um, but I suppose that there was a question at the end of this, which is, oh, yes. you've been in the comedy industry for years. Yes. Um, sort of started in the early 2000s, did you? Or was it um, I'm very shady about when it really was, yeah. because um, it's it's a weird thing in that it's, it's, it's deemed an insult, I think, to have been around for a long time, because uh, it's like, well, why aren't you more successful? So I went through a phase, I did a mentoring scheme where I started saying I've been in the business for 20 years and started seeing myself as a bit more of an elder stateswoman rather than, mm -hmm. oh God, it's embarrassing. Um, it is actually probably slightly longer than 20 years. And I think the mentoring is sort of fading from my confidence a bit now okay. because, because I, I do sometimes have that overwhelming thing of if I've been around for that long, why the hell haven't I given up yet? Uh, yeah. But it's a very weird industry in that, in that you're constantly on a hamster wheel. So every time, every time you're at the verge of going, well, nothing's working, so it's finally the time to give up, that's when something amazing will happen. So yeah. I've spent the past 20-something years, so it was the late 90s, but also I started the year that my mum died. So I kind of started and then I stopped again. Um, and, and I think actually the, the, the whole of, my career has has been in phases mm. so even though i was doing comedy before i had my daughter so for instance i gigged while i was pregnant with my daughter there was something about having a child which put the boot up me far more so my career nearly everything on my cv for instance is post having my daughter things that weren't just messing about is post having my daughter. So, so writing for television, supporting bigger comics, doing Edinburgh, anything that's actually like, you know, a badge of honor has been post 2006. Even though I was doing comedy before that, it was kind of just happening rather than yeah. actively moving forwards. So the, the, uh, I don't know the answer to this question. Then. Do mm -hmm. you have those people who you kind of, seek out or crave the approval of do you have people whose opinions you elevate above others that matter more to you on a personal level in the industry goodness um almost everybody because i'm pretty much entirely ego driven um 
So there are people, oh goodness, I'm trying to think. I mean, I think anybody that's achieved a certain level of success hmm. because they've managed to climb a ladder that I haven't managed to climb. So there's always a certain aspect of, oh, you can still see me from where you are up there. Mm. Um, I do hold great score, especially by people who've come up quicker than I have and are possibly on the television who will turn around and recognize that. I'm trying to say this in a polite way. Some people recognize uh, my generation, particularly, and particularly my generation of female comics, late 90s, early 2000s, pretty much none of us made it big none of us got on the television and there are some younger comics who will acknowledge that they climbed up on our backs in a way um so for instance uh i i write for new world order and i've been writing with frankie boyle on and off for 13 years and there are people who will sit on the panel on new world order who will acknowledge to me personally that they know i work on it and then there are yeah. other people who've sat on that panel who'll be like who the fuck are you yeah. so Anybody who is still able to see me from their lofty heights, it yeah. means something to me if they recognize that, 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 that there are cogs going on in the background. Uh, even with Frankie, I've been working with him for 13 years, but even the smallest compliment from him will still make me go, oh, thank you. Even though that's kind of illogical, because why would he have employed me if he didn't like me? But, yeah, but he's still very important to me. And I think also because he's not somebody who doles out compliments yeah. constantly and very easily um he called you uh, in his book he called you inspiringly funny yes that must be something that you'd almost want on your gravestone yeah <laughs> well i use it in my publicity yeah well I'd put it, why why the fuck wouldn't you i mean i would use it all the time well he I'd designed <laughs> he designed a specific thing when i was doing my edinburgh show which was and see i don't know if i can even remember it now Meryl O'Rourke is a tiny nymph that dances on the hand of the god of laughter. Please cherish her. Hmm. Um, what a wonderful thing to say. He originally said Meryl O'Rourke is a concubine of the god of laughter. <laughs> and then we had a, a conversation about how I was unhappy with him sexualizing me. <laughs> um, and that people already regarded our relationship with some suspicion and that using the word concubine may confirm that false suspicion and we had a bit of a debate so then I said do you want to put muse and he said I don't want to put muse because that means that you entirely inspire me and you only vaguely we had a really stupid <laughs> conversation about Look much over analy yeah. analysis yeah well yeah but that's that's what we do really of course, and, um, words are important especially in our industry Words are important in our industry and especially when you work um Frankie I, I, I don't think to his choice really but he has fallen into a place where he does one-liners because he fell into panel show comedy um so literally the use of the specific word within that short sentence has always been a very important thing mm. um but yeah so i think he'd probably rather i use that since that was the the line he specially designed for me but inspiringly funny is quicker and and more flattering mm. i guess and, and it was a shock when he put that he did say that he was going to thank me yeah. in the book um but yes i was very very shocked when he put that even though it, it's a really weird relationship i shouldn't be shocked because he will text me and say what do you think of this um but yeah i still am and and i and i always i mean you know when you said who are the people in the industry that makes you feel like that i am still i think at heart the the little bullied girl at school 
So anybody who ever compliments me, it's still quite overwhelming. Mm. Um, I sometimes worry that I come across as arrogant because when people say nice things to me, I will often retweet it or talk about it a lot or go, oh, my God, look at this. But it's because I am genuinely still always yeah. taken aback. Yeah. I've never found you arrogant. I've, I've found you um, intimidating. <laughs> but as, uh, again, that's, so how old are you, Mary, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 51. So you're, you're a little older than me. I'm in my mid-40s. But I think there's this weird thing in comedy, because I came to comedy quite late. I've only been doing it for three or four years, of the comedy age as opposed to your actual physical age. Of you know, yeah. You're a much older comic in that sense. So you're much more experienced. You're much more sort of a, a much more elevated status within the industry. Yeah. And so, again, I suppose it's that thing about approval is that you're, you're very clear about what you think is right and fair and this kind of leads on to the next thing both in terms of within the industry and out with the industry elsewhere yeah and that can be i don't know and it's not because you're a woman because i know that, that see, this is the <laughs> thing now you've got me on the back foot immediately it's it's i would be the same and i was the same you graham you on the back foot always <laughs> I, I, I was in the green room mentioning alan cochran i was in the green room with alan cochran at a gig yeah. and i thought that his latest stuff that he was doing that was new material was a move away from his earlier stuff where he'd done a lot of stuff about you know he did the peach on a train sequence that made it big on online and stuff like that it was a bit more about life and then now he was doing stuff about kind of woke culture and stuff like that and i'd suggested that that looked to me as a punter like a bit of a shift okay. he didn't like that and so then i was like oh i didn't want to sort of cause a problem or you know and i sort of retreated instead of, but i think if you'd been in that situation you'd have been like no i can explain my thought process really clearly here's what i think boom and to I you can't do that to, to if you were saying you the same to, thing to another comic so if you were in my position where you'd said something and a comic maybe uh. taken a bit of umbrage at what you'd said i think on a creative level you'd have been able to sort of break down your opinion really succinctly and made your point and i can't do that if I get but i think that's because uh because you've known me as a teacher mm. and also because you've known me so like you said you see me as one of the bigger kids so it's almost mm. like um well because like school is in terms of age so maybe and i'm the only reason i'm resisting saying like university is because we have more than three years <laughs> Yeah. But so you see me as a, as a fifth former, or like yeah. we used to. What is it now? Year eleven. Year 11 but the yeah. thing is, I see Alan as above me. Yeah. So Alan okay. for me is a sixth former. So yeah. actually, um, I I always thought that me and Alan didn't get on because the first time I ever met Alan Cochran, um, he had either just had a baby or his wife was pregnant and I was in the throes of postnatal depression and I was in a green room where everybody was congratulating him and I wasn't and I was just being a bit sort of grumpy mm. um, and I felt that he took umbrage to that and it's interesting mm. that you said that you felt that he took umbrage to what you said and I am wondering how much of that might just be Alan's face <laughs> I mean I don't know Alan particularly well so that sounds rude but yeah um from having worked with him since then, uh, there was no difficulty between us. I was dreading him coming into the room in case he was going to come in and go, oh, it's you, you miserable bitch. And he was completely friendly yeah. and completely, oh, hello. And even though we'd only met each other once, I mean, that's one of the wonderful things that I really love about the comedy industry is you can meet someone once, but then 10 years later, they'll still treat you as if you're a friend because yeah. we're all instant friends. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so... I, I don't know. And sometimes it is 
dependent on the comedian and I think people are very precious about their own routines so I actually if I wasn't in a position of being a teacher and if I wasn't in a position of somebody asking me I would be very reluctant to say to somebody oh this is what I think of your routine Mm. and this Mm. is how I think this could go the weird thing was I was trying to compliment him and it just yeah. tips up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the other thing so the other thing that really if someone said to me who was Meryl, you know, okay. when, the other thing I would say As is, many people do <laughs> all the time. Uh, but um outside of comedy, you're so the most common thing I see from you on social media is mm. I shouldn't be on here, I should be working. Because, oh, but, God. And then and then after that, when you've acknowledged that in the day, say 11 o'clock in the morning, you'll tweet, God, I'm meant to be writing today, but I'm on here. And then there'll be about two or three more hours of activity on social media. And it's not comedy oh. related. It's almost oh, never God. comedy related. It's almost always society, social issues, whether it's sort of politics or uh, one of the things you've been kind of um, posting a lot about is geographical to you, issues around the, the traffic yeah, measures yeah, yeah. introduced around you and how they're impacting your daily life and your kids and the local area to you or you might talk about something that's been in the news or whatever and it feels to me like in a way that's similar to, to stuff that I've done where you you can't get to the creative part of your job until you've kind of exercised all uh-huh. of that stuff out of your it's in your head. You need to get it. You need to digest it. Yeah. Get it out there. Clear it, and then write or work or whatever. How much time do you th- or energy do you think you give to that side of stuff that probably that isn't earning you money? Oh God, you're going to make me cry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Didn't mean to. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Either way, too much or just enough. Mm. Um it's very difficult to tell with social media and it's very difficult to to tell as a writer because all that stuff feeds your writing. Mm. Um, But sometimes that's an excuse. Mm. So if I end up writing material about that stuff, then I guess it's great. Mm. But I don't always end up writing material about that stuff. I don't have the self-discipline to write that I bully my students into, which is probably why I've been told I am, I mean, you know better than I do, but I co- I'm constantly told I'm quite a strict teacher. Mm. And it's it's a very much a case of physician heal thyself. I mean, I say to my children constantly, do what I say, not what I do. Yeah. I see myself as somewhat of a, of a bad, bad example to learn from. Um, but that said, I don't know how to get that out of my head. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how to put my brain into an adrenalized moving forward thinking about things articulating things state without having some opinions and I often don't have anybody to talk to at home so I think that's a big deal um so for instance uh most days I wake up late my body clock I've been working evenings well you know even before I worked evenings I was in amateur dramatics as a child and I was in dance classes so my brain comes alive quite late in the evening and I wake up late um Mm. I usually wake up to an empty house Mm. so and also my my husband is a very quiet person so the only conversations I can have are online so for me to actually get my my vocabulary going, my thought process going, 
uh, I'm either shouting at the television or I'm online and then and and I find being online more nourishing because then you get the feedback yeah and I suppose if you're writing for a show like New World Order which looks at current affairs mainly politically if you can this one mainly politically um then you're naturally driven to digest all of that news and all of that input and that drives that output on social media i suppose i was just my thing was um how much do you accept that that's just part of you because at the end of the day that is just part of you um and trying like, to accept habit, it it's a habit you've formed and you can try and maybe break out of it but um you wouldn't be you without that so is it almost now part of your process that you'll kind of have a good old clear out of all the shit in your brain that's really annoying you and then right or does it just sort of happen i think it's part of my process but i'm very bad at writing at the moment um new world order ended in i think we were writing the new the end of year special probably december mm-hmm. um and i should be writing for myself and I am on a playwriting course, but this is the longest gap I've had without working on something with Frankie. He's got a few fingers and a few pies. And I have noticed that my drive to write generally is being reduced by being, not being forced to write. Yeah. And I am waiting. I've, I've got an agent. I, I, I should say new agent because I have had agents in the past, but actually he's, he's done more work in the past months than any of my previous agents have. So, um, I am waiting for him to say to me, can you get off social media and do this? And I do need that sometimes. I do need people mm. to give me a bit of a kick. Um, but yes, so I, I don't know how much of the process it is because I, I, I don't know if I can link a specific day or I've specifically worked really hard with oh that was the day i spent three hours on twitter but also i make a lot of contacts on twitter so for instance i just wrote a piece for the new statesman which was a wonderful thing to do even though it was very short but it was the first block of uh deadline driven writing i've done in months so it reminded me that i could write um and that was a and piece about um, you agreeing with Julia Hartley Brewer on something. Which, my God, I know. Which well, what was funny was you. I had just agreed with her on on a particular Facebook group about the the same issue. Ah. And someone had said basically assumed I was some sort of um, Julia Hartley Brewer pro bot <laughs> because yeah. I must always agree with her. And I was like, no, I've literally no. I don't. I can't remember ever agreeing with her before. And it was that she had um, commented about. Um, you should be able to joke about rape, basically, in a nutshell, was what she'd said. Yeah. And, and she said other things as well. Same as yours. Yeah, yeah well, she said other things. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things that pulled out. Because my editor wanted it to be very specifically about that one sentence and what I had written originally, um, because uh, it was 500 words and I wrote 570 words. So, um, my editor and, and and in the end i said to my editor you're, you're gonna have to be brutal with me because i'm literally chopping you get to the point where you've said oh i've said can't i i do not so i can turn that into i don't <laughs> you've yeah. done all that you've cut as much as you can feel you can cut so it wasn't just her initial thing where she said 
I've laughed about jokes about rape. One of the things that I actually really liked about this thread, and, and, and I have to confirm, like you, this is the only time I've ever agreed with Julia Hartley Brewer on anything, was she kept saying in all of her replies when people would, she said, I defer to professional comedians. So what she'd been asked to do, somebody had said to her, if you think these jokes are funny, tell us a joke that you think is funny about rape. And all the way through, she said, it's in the context of a professional comedian's routine. And what I really liked about that was it's so rare in these debates, so rare that anybody will give us the respect to say, hang on, professional comedians, they sit down, they think about this, they write it, they rewrite it, they edit it, they perform it, then they go back and they rewrite it again. She understood that there's a big difference between somebody telling a joke that they've heard and probably telling it a bit badly and telling it out of context on Twitter with watching a Netflix special where somebody has worked out what they're going to say in advance and worked out to how to present it to a crowd. Um, but the piece that I wrote for the New Statesman wanted to be very focused on just the concept of whether you could tell a joke about rape or not. Um, so they didn't include me saying that I was very pleased to see that she'd given that respect to comedians because we yeah. don't get that like you know when we had the whole um you know uh pug gate thing the nazi pug thing where some bloke had had recorded his not his dog i can't even remember that because it's so long ago but recorded his, his dog, dog doing a nazi salute, salute. um yeah. and everyone was like treating it as if oh but you know comedy is this and comedy is that it was a bloke who made a video and we were treating him the same as our colleagues who will spend months writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and doing previews to work out if something is palatable to a large a large variety of audiences mm. you know it's the it's the other big story in recent months, and I'd love your opinion on it, um, for, for a couple of reasons, um, which I'll explain, um, was the uh, Jimmy Carr special at Christmas. He made, he included, I mean, he's Jimmy Carr, so of course he did, but he included a joke that, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said that the one thing that people don't remember about the Holocaust is that um, thousands of, of gypsies were also um, killed in the Holocaust because nobody likes to talk about the upsides. I think that's mm -hmm. roughly the joke. Now, yeah. interesting that you've talked about the, the subject of rape as, a, as a, an issue you can joke about. Mm -hmm. You are Jewish and yes. you have done a show in the past, an Edinburgh show about your, I believe it was your grandmother. Um, no, well, both, my, my, my mother more mom. directly. So it's about yeah, living with a mother who had the P PTSD basically from, from yeah from escaping yeah. the holocaust and i'm about to so, start writing about that again as well so i suppose there's two questions there one your opinion of the joke if you're happy to share it and if you're not that's fine but then also your opinion of the i believe at the time nadine doris blesser um suggested that we should basically outlaw offensive humor which was just a a brilliant concept um what, what you know without wanting to go down a political route because it links in with content that you've done before first of all what did you think of the joke uh it was quite difficult i think to see to hear me pausing one issue is that um jimmy is extremely influential in the comedy world so a lot of people don't realize that I'm trying to phrase this so I mean I'm trying to phrase it so I don't get into trouble, but I actually don't think Jimmy likes me anyway, so maybe I shouldn't 
worry about this, but he has a position um, on eight out of 10 cats, which is one of the few shows that comedians audition for rather than get chosen because you're already on television. And he has broken so many careers, like made so many. In fact, he discovered Frankie. Um, so I wouldn't exist as somebody working with Frankie if Jimmy Carr hadn't discovered him. And he is a wonderful craftsman. And I also find it very difficult to criticize other people's jokes. And it was something that I realized quite quickly that I try not to criticize other people's jokes because jokes are very contextual. Mm -hmm. And it would be very easy for somebody to take one of my jokes out of context or even a joke that I told 10, 12, 13 years ago that I would now not tell. So I try not to, especially, uh, you know, I, there's a bit I, when I'm teaching. I can't remember if I did this with your class. I think I might have done. There's, there's a video I use of somebody trying out some new material about trans people, which I sometimes used to teach with. And I spent quite a long time beforehand going, I have nothing against this comedian. He was trying out new material. The only reason that I'm bringing up this video is because I was there. So I can tell you the context because I don't want people thinking that I'm going, this comic's crap and I'm great because we all, so it's very difficult. But what became more difficult is being Jewish and being uh, from a Holocaust surviving family, I felt my silence was deafening. And I know that Dave Schneider, for instance, got into a particular amount of trouble speaking out against the joke and then people raising jokes with him that he had told about gypsies and traveler communities in the past and him then trying to get his head around the fact that he had done this thing and not even remembered it. Um, and I know David Badil as well found it very difficult to be silent on it. So. Um, I've, I've been so awkward about answering the question. I can't even remember what the question was now. I suppose the question would be: Did you, on a on a on a on a on a surface level, did you find the joke funny, or was it? Did it immediately make you bristle? I didn't or... find the joke funny. It made me bristle uh, because yeah. uh, you know it's like I said in the article about the rape jokes. It's who is the butt of this joke, and can yeah. they take it? And it was a quite an ABC joke of it's a very basic misdirection you expect something to be bad and he says it's good but what i say about there's all these phrases about punching up punching down and, and all this but the easiest way to phrase it is can they take it can the mm. person you're telling the joke about handle the joke and actually yeah. the way that the traveler community are treated no they can't yeah. um and what was interesting with your other point about nadine doris saying she wants to outlaw the joke is our government in the policing bill is currently trying to outlaw the traveler community so yeah, yeah. that was horrible as well knowing that we were damned if we do and damned if you don't if you do approve of the joke then the government outlaw the traveling community if you don't approve of the joke they outlaw netflix so you know that was a horrible situation to be in as well just having the debate, debate, the debate full stop. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I, I think a lot of people are very emboldened by being told that it's all right to hate them. And it's all right as well to take them out of conversations about the Holocaust. And one thing that's quite interesting is that um, part of the Roma tradition is privacy. Um, and they have traditionally not spoken about what happened to their community in the Holocaust because it's not done in their culture to talk about things that private. Uh, Mengele uh, specifically was fascinated by the Roma and most of the medical experiments he did were on Roma. 
people. Um, and because in their culture, you don't talk about your private business and a lot of the things that happened to them were uh, sexual abuse mm -hmm. and medical abuse. It's, it's been particularly difficult for their communities to talk about and be open about. And, you know, as a Jewish person, there's often a, a debate on the, uh, the genocide part of the Holocaust was for the Jews. So, for instance, when you talk about um, gay people being killed in the Holocaust, uh, Hitler didn't intend to wipe out all homosexuality from existing. You only went into a concentration camp if you were openly gay, which doesn't mean that that was fine, because being openly gay means you can live your life happily. Uh, but what it does mean is that in terms of genocide, he wanted to remove Judaism from existing, from Jews from existing. But he did do the same thing for the Roma. They also wanted to stop Roma people existing. And unfortunately, a lot of people still feel like that. And a lot of people still feel justified in saying it publicly. So that's why I wouldn't go there with that joke. So, I mean, we've just talked about something there, which is sort of serious, uh, potentially serious issues. Obviously, in the Jimmy Carr situation, it was a, a horrifically serious issue rendered down to a one-liner, um, which is not something you would ever do. But you do talk about... Um, <laughs> I absolutely do. Well, do. I don't think you would just drop it and you know, like a thought grenade, and and run off. You you talk. About, I mean, you 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 might crystallise an idea you've talked about down to kind of one punchline or one thought. Yeah. But you do talk about serious stuff on stage. Um, yeah. So in Vanilla, which is your special that is um, coming out on June the tenth. June the tenth, as far as I know. Um, there's been an initial email saying June the 10th. There hasn't Brilliant. been one saying it's definitely June the 10th, but we're going with June the 10th at the moment. Brilliant. So not long then. Um, no. and next up, the comedy streaming service, which if you haven't got it, it's a great excuse to get it, folks. Um, it's only £2 a month. I didn't realise. It's a bargain, isn't it? Yeah, it's um, ridiculously cheap. So in, in Vanilla, now I've seen mm. two iterations, yes. I think, of Vanilla a couple of years apart. Um yeah, the, lo the longest show to develop. Well, I'm sure there are shows that took longer to develop, yeah. but what but with uh, lockdown and stuff. And I suppose whether it's evolved much post-lockdown, I don't know, I've not seen the latest version, but um, in that you talk about a variety of things that would be seen as, I don't know, hard-hitting, serious, um, not necessarily normal subject matter for a stand-up show well it was the reason that the new statesman article came about because when the uh comments editor said to me i presume from your twitter feed that you would be very angry about people making jokes about rape mm. i went well i've got a special coming out soon which has got a 10-minute routine where i take people through an attempted rape so no, I can't be hypocritical. You, I'm not uh, sure it is actually ten minutes, but that's yeah. I've never actually. It's certainly a lengthy routine. Um, yes. It's a lengthy part of the show, and it is when you say an attempted rape, it is something that happened to you. To or, me, if that's the right. To, again, this is me trying. You mentioned earlier about us being painfully woke or awkwardly woke. Is that thing of? I I nearly said which you were the victim of, and then I thought that the word victim has so many connotations now that I was reluctant to. Just it, leap in well, with that. But. The whole reason, I think one of the reasons that is in the show is that it's not a situation that had straight lines. And no. 
the show did keep morphing in what it was going to be about because as more societal issues came up regarding sexuality and young women's sexuality it started to be more about young women being lied to about just how powerful they are sexually whereas originally i think my initial urge the initial urge of putting the story in the show was that i felt i had dealt with the me too um movement differently to how i'd been expected to in that i had dealt with it privately to give myself my own power over what had happened to me rather than making it a very public thing where other people were invited to judge yeah um but yeah so and it is a difficult thing to term and i call it now an attempted rape but before before the Me Too thing and before I met with the gentleman to talk through it, I regarded it very much as a rape. And I spoke about it very differently before I had. I don't like using the term forgiveness, which I accidentally said during the next up recording. So actually the permanent record of it has the word forgiveness, which I'm very angry about because it was more closure. So, yes, before I had the closure, I spoke about exactly the same event with way more fear and anger than i do after it um does that change down to time maturity that kind of thing or is it just is it is it the main change that you have spoken with the other party about it it's down to facts i think okay and um my emotions that uh, that's the thing it is a very difficult thing to talk about so I remain as scared in the moment as I was at the time. I suppose, sorry, I'm being asked to save things. That's why that's, I'm getting confused. So the fact of how scared I was doesn't change, but the fact of speaking to him and realizing his intentions and that I don't think it would ever have gone as far as a full rape that had that's changed the definition of it and there was an early like i was toying in the early ideas of the show about actually getting the audience to vote on whether they whether they perceived that i had been raped or not i have had people come up to me after the show and go the length that it went to and where it got to you were raped and i have had people the only person who's got angry with the show i, I expected people to get angry because of the perception that i'd forgiven him which, um, like I say, it's very much more closure than forgiveness. Um, the only person that has actually really shouted at me was somebody who was angry with me for blaming him, for blaming the man who held me down, <laughs> down on a bed by my neck because I was in his flat uh, and I knew that he found me attractive. And that's the only person who's actually got very angry. And I've said to him, I said to the man who was shouting at me, you are angrier than the gentleman in question. Okay, the gentleman in question who did these things has uh, admitted to them, apologised to them, and is horrified by them. You are not having seen that routine that anyone could have that as a takeaway from from that the description you give. And so my experience of watching that as a bloke in an audience, and this is and you know all the cliches come out as a bloke in an audience who's a husband, a father, all of that, a brother, a, a son, uh -huh. was it knocked me on my ass figuratively speaking it, it completely 
it's not the sort of thing that is normally um, something that you experience in a in a comedy show. It's a sort of thing that, from my background, I would maybe have expected to see on a, a, a theatrical stage in a theatrical setting rather than a comedic one. And yeah. it 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 had that thing of you've had a lot of laughs leading up to it in your show, and then this hits and giving one pause for thought isn't the right phrase it doesn't it's more than that it's a it was a real gut punch but all of the laughs leading up have been relatively edgy up till then mm. so it wasn't like i was mm. talking about kittens and snowdrops no no it wasn't like all oh, like yes. fluffy but um, it was laughter and it was very difficult it was it was balanced the, the early previews were very hard in how much i should say and how much i shouldn't say and one thing about what i've just explained which which to anybody listening to the podcast going hang on a minute you're going to make fun of somebody holding you down by your neck that was cut out of the show. that was that's really what happened and that was in the initial shows and people found that too upsetting and it was cut out so I, I would say in the show that he held me down. But then at the point where we recorded the show, it was during um, a TikTok. I'm not on TikTok anymore, so I don't know if this trend has ended. It was during a choreographic trend where women were holding themselves by the neck in choreography and music videos to try and look sexy, which is um, the statistics are very difficult to pin down on this, but strangulation is one of the most common forms of uh, femicide of people killing women and it had become choreography and so uh, there, there is a joke about that or even I don't know if it's so much a joke because it was so so close to recording it that I was just like I have to put this in the show because this is obsessing me that that this nonsense that we've made this this really frightening action actually you know women in music videos going oh i find this sexy that you're putting your hand around my throat and because of the parallel of that i felt well actually it's quite important that i put back in that he held me down by my throat mm. um which was the thing that made it terrifying and which was the thing when we discussed it where he was genuinely disgusted with himself um, for people who haven't seen the show and will be like, well, didn't he know? The, the guy involved was an alcoholic at the time and um, has had to. I mean, that's the other thing. And I say as well that it was it was much easier speaking to him about it than, than it would be for many other victims and many other women, because he had gone through the process of being disgusted with himself. And um, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, Graham, but um, when I had the conversation with him, and said, um, from what I hear, you are no longer the man you used to be. And he said, I hate that cunt more than you do. Um, and I actually think it was a very important process for him to go through the process of facing me and feeling disgusted at himself. And that's another thing that comes up when we discuss this. So I was talking to my agent about the article about whether you can write jokes about rape. And, and, and he was very much of the opinion that if you are a victim, you can. But I also think it's important, like you've said, you are a husband and a father of girls. So for men who are disgusted either at themselves or disgusted at other people, I think it's also important that you are able to dissect those feelings and dissect those emotions. And also we mustn't forget, I have, uh, I'm very close to somebody who is a man who was raped. And one of the things that very much annoys me about the Me Too movement is there are on the comedy circuit, a number of men, I think at least three men have come forward to accuse another man 
and it's generally been ignored and that yeah. makes me so angry <laughs> i suppose uh, that's another thing because i know you said yeah. you wanted to get <laughs> when we had a technical break when the recording screwed up and uh, during that you said something we're talking about mental health i suppose i'm leading to that because yeah but this is my mental health because is, exactly. um, you know i have ptsd so um i mean i'm not from that incident and i was very aware when i wrote the article about the rape jokes that I was talking about a show in which I talk about an attempted rape. And I was waiting for somebody to say to me, you do realize that if he hadn't stopped, you may feel more traumatized about this than you do. Hmm. Um, and I make it very clear in the show that at the time it was happening, I didn't know it was going to stop. So when we're actually Still going through my thought processes at the time, at the time. time. exactly. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I make the jokes about, you know, the joke about the perception of somebody, oh, well, she's okay because it didn't happen is ridiculous because you can't project that on the woman actually at the time no. in the situation. So you mentioned the Me Too stuff. Um, me too stuff that's really shit way of putting it but the me too that's all right no i i did the don't know whether to call it a move um so i i remember um so the, for me there was the if, if you're not in the comedy industry the me too movement kind of means harvey weinstein and bill cosby and all of that yeah. stuff that exploded at that time in the sort of the public consciousness and the media and all of that but then um during the lockdown period the, the British comedy industry kind of had its own. Um, we had it before that. Of those stories. It's exactly what I was getting at when I yeah. said I spoke to you about it, and you said, "But the thing is, this isn't we the first this. Me Too movement for comedy. We did this years ago, and every couple of years we have this." And then it goes, "Is your is your perception now?" So it, since then, um, Get Off has been set up, which is kind of trying to be a, a, a recognised kind of self policing industry body that deals with trying to make comedy safe a safe space for people to perform and, and not a safe space necessarily on stage in terms of that's a, a safe space in terms of the logistics <laughs> of getting to and from a gig and not getting attacked or raped or abused or sexually harassed yeah but do i wrote an article have, about this years ago you know yeah, this is exactly uh, my point is do you see this stuff and as someone who is kind of one of the the longer in the tooth performers in in one sense do you look at it and go we've done this already, it's not going to work? Or do you look at it and think maybe it'll work this time? Or what do you, and how does that impact you as a woman still performing in the industry? Does that change how you view view that stuff? Um, oh, I don't know where to start with this one. Well, I mean, because we are meant to be talking about my mental health, which we keep not, I've made loads of notes. <laughs> I'll get there, I'll get there. I'm trying uh, to yeah, read you in. But it's what people forget. So I, I have PTSD. So when the Me Too stuff is dragged up every few years, what people forget is the mental health toll it takes on a lot of the women and the men, because I don't want to exclude them, the people who have had frightening experiences. Not all of my frightening experiences have been within the comedy industry, but they've been enough. And also when you have frightening experiences of sexual harassment, what one has to do with PTSD, for instance. So what PTSD is it does is it drags what for most people is an imaginary last resort world into your reality. So that thing on the news where people say, oh, this kind of stuff only happens to other families. You are that other family. You are the person who goes, this is going to happen to me. And it stops being this might happen to me in the worst case. And it starts being this will definitely. And every, 
what people forget is that every every time I leave the house at 7 p.m. to go to start working somewhere at 9 p.m. and then I'm coming back midnight, whatever, I am actually having to trick my brain into telling myself that that's a safe thing for me to do. Even though as a woman on my own, traveling around the country at 1 a.m. is not generally perceived as a safe thing to do. So what happens when the Me Too thing is, is revived every couple of years is you are constantly reminding the women and the men who've experienced it in the industry that what they do is unsafe. Mm. And therefore, just getting up and getting to your gig becomes way more difficult because you are suddenly reminded of the lift you have to give, of the promoter that you have to avoid hugging, of the fact that you don't know who's on the bill with you, the fact that you don't know who you're giving a lift to, the fact that at the end of the gig you are leaving and there may be somebody that you did a bit of banter with in the audience who takes the wrong idea and follows you to your car. We have to forget that all of those things are possibilities just to be able to do our job. So when we're constantly reminded of it and we're not reminded of it with any kind of seeking to resolve it ever. It's, and, and the big thing I found from teaching you when you were like, oh, well, they've had a Me Too movement. And I had to say to you, we had it in 2016. And you had to say to me, I wasn't in comedy in 2016. That mm -hmm. I constantly now try to remind people in the industry, there is no point naming someone and removing them from the industry because a new comics <laughs> will all start and amongst them will be predators. I mean, we recently had a guy um, who is in court for paedophilia who um, probably, you know, I mean, that's one thing about paedophiles in the industry. They're probably not being predatory because this is an adult industry, but he wasn't around a few years ago. So whenever there's a new intake of comedians, there will be predators within that. One of the problems is a lot of it is circumstantial in comedy. So uh, I know you, you know me as a teacher. I will say to my students, you've got to treat it like the office because a lot of people don't want to treat it like the office. They want to be pissed. They want to be high. We're in Edinburgh. We're sharing flats with people we don't know simply because they are the people who are there who are willing to pay for that flat. We are walking. We are getting lifts with people we don't know. We, we, we are attracted to people. And, and, and there's that really weird line of, at what point does our job finish? So if, if, if two single comedians are attracted to each other, at what point are they doing that at work? And at what point are they not doing that at work? And also this weird thing that happens, one of the biggest things for me with Me Too was when I was starting off in comedy, how a man who asked me to sleep with, how a comedian who asked me to sleep with him would react if I turned him down or if I accepted him, was often the same so it wasn't to do with the sex it was to do with after the sex when they would go to the club and say don't employ that woman so one of the issues i have with a comedian it was it was entirely well this is the other thing and this is why i have the story in vanilla about the vagaries of consent mm -hmm. because i say it was entirely consensual because i fancied the hell out of him but he got me so plastered that i actually couldn't do anything and when he decided this comedian who I would have said yes to without him getting me drunk. Um, and I know that he got me drunk as well, because and this is useful. You might you might want to advise your daughter with this. Right. I'm an utter skinflint. I, I don't like spending money. 
So I never buy myself alcoholic drinks. So I know every time I was drunk in my 20s that the man I was with got me drunk. And this is quite useful. Yeah. <laughs> good, yeah. If you never buy your own drinks, you know that somebody has got you drunk. Um, and we were trying to have, I was too drunk and it was freaking him out. So he walked, he, he walked out of the house and then started telling people not to employ me. And I was actually at a gig at the time. I was an open spot. I was going to do an open spot at club. He walked in, saw me, spoke to the booker and she asked me to leave. I don't know what he said. And but that wasn't to do with whether it was consensual or not. It was to do with him being an asshole. And it was to do with we still have an industry which is word of mouth. So you can still just say to somebody that comedian's shit and that comedian then won't get booked. Mm. But you might be saying that comedian's shit because you are embarrassed to be in the room with them because you've had sex with them. Mm. Mm. You know, so we need it, it's, it's not about naming people. It's about changing the culture of the industry, which is why, I mean, Get Off describes itself as an HR department. Mm. And that's absolutely we we don't like that we resist it in comedy because a lot of people have gone into comedy because they don't want to be in the office yeah but anything that smells of formality and legals and hrs i don't want that i want to drink beer on stage yeah you can still drink beer on stage but try not to break equalities law while you're at it you know yeah absolutely so um you've mentioned ptsd a few times mm -hmm. is that is that well, your... you told me we were going to be talking about my mental health. Exactly. Yeah, and because I'm also vaguely autistic, I've made a list of my mental health issues. So. Well, there you go. That's what I was going to ask is because uh, I don't, I don't, looking at the outside in as an amateur layperson with my own mental health issues, I would have been. You're an, if... You have amateur mental health. Yeah, absolutely. What, what does I, that I, even mean? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, I'm not a mental health professional, but I kind of. I'm not a mental you know, health professional. Some... I've but... just been mental for a, for a long time. So PTSD, list them. What are your what flavour of fucked up are you? What uh, fucked up are you? I officially have PTSD, and the good thing about PTSD actually is it contains a lot of the others. Yeah. So PTSD also contains anxiety, depression, mm -hmm. OCD. Uh, it's not. It's kind of like the Debenhams of mental health. <laughs> like you've got all the departments. It's more like Woolworths. But I don't know if Woolworths is yeah because. Well, it's more like Woolworths in that you would get like somebody would leave their weed killer next to the pick and mix. Like you get it all mixed up. <laughs> um, you know, there'd be a, a, a 45 single stuck to one of your sherbets. Um, so I have that. And uh, I had postnatal depression, um, mm -hmm. which I've written about and talk about a lot on stage. Uh, though it's weird with postnatal depression because even though it is a mental health issue, I actually feel it's more physical. And with all the research I've done on it, it seems to be a chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also, in some ways, the most logical way to approach having a baby. It's, it's not a logical thing. Uh, loving a baby is an entirely chemical, chemically derived thing from the oxytocin you get, the high you get from holding this delicate thing and hopefully from breastfeeding it. I know a lot of women who haven't breastfed, who don't get postnatal depression, but they do think it's very linked with it because you don't get your oxytocin rush, you know? Um, and also I lived with two parents who looking back had PTSD before that was something that was diagnosed with anybody who wasn't a soldier. Um, and what else? I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm autistic. 
but I haven't had a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. But um, well, this is a, this is very shallow. In that, uh, my new agent was looking for autistic comedians for an autistic gig, so I was like, well, I better find out if I am because I can make some it's, money off the back of this. Yeah, more marketable now. <laughs> I know, but it's never needed to be. And also, a lot of the things which apparently are my autism, I resent. Like, I resent the fact that I require somebody to finish a sentence which they started to be termed as me having a mental health difficulty. Like, mm-hmm. sorry, if you've said, if you've started talking and you clearly haven't finished, I need you to finish that sentence. That's not me being mental. That's you <laughs> being mental. Yeah, she tried living with my wife. She's currently um, suffering from a double dose of brain fog because of um, the after effects of COVID and the uh, the perimenopause yeah. leading into menopause. So, frequent probably more sentences go unfinished than get finished at the moment. And oh uh, well, I get that as well. Yeah. And that's so, the other thing about mental health. Like, is me being perimenopausal a mental health issue? It's starting to certainly feel that way. Hmm. And it's those lines where you're going, how much of this is me being mental and how much of this is my body chemistry and how much of this is also other people being assholes. I mean, like sometimes I'm of the age now, I don't know if your wife gets this, where if somebody is genuinely annoying me, it will be recommended that I go on HRT. And you're like, well, how about you start replying to emails <laughs> rather than I medicate myself stop, to deal with the fact a that you want to chat? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's what she says. I've started talking about that on stage and it gets such a good reaction. I think it's quite a common feeling. <laughs> well, that's so that links in then is because although this is a this is a podcast about I suppose the the where mental health and comedy overlap, where they yeah. how one impacts the other. So you've got a, a wide range of of things to throw into the melting pot that could inform your comedy could could mean comedy's your outlet or could absolutely cripple you and stop you going on stage yeah is it all of the above is it some of that or how does it impact on your comedy because i knew i was talking to you i was trying to work it out and i think i actually have <laughs> Uh, you know, quite an autistic uh, view of it. Sorry, I'm embracing my my possible new <laughs> diagnosis. Uh, in that, it's actually quite direct. I have written a solo show about growing up with a mother with PTSD. I have written a script about postnatal depression. I have written a solo show about whatever Vanilla actually was about in the end. You're probably better because you've seen it. You could, I mean, I'm on a podcast trying to sell my show, but I've always found it so difficult. Really to hard to nutshell it, about. Carol. I will say it's really <laughs> hard to nutshell it, and that, but that's part of the beauty of the show is that you can't really encapsulate it in one strapline. I don't think. Yeah, maybe it's about the lines between owning your sexuality and other people taking advantage of your sexuality. But it's certainly okay. I'll try that one for a while. Mm. It was trying to answer people expect because I've got a dirty mouth on me they've always expected that I've been very adventurous sexually and then always very disappointed to find out I haven't been and yet for some reason they never think that might be because when I tried to be adventurous sexually it went horribly wrong Mm. Um, and what a lot of people now are being termed as oh you're a bit frigid you're a bit you're a bit uptight you're a bit frigid never is presumed maybe they tried it and they got slapped on the wrist you know, I've actually been, um, I was in a dressing room once 
with a with a woman who told me that because I wasn't interested in investigating anal sex, I was homophobic. And she was saying this very loudly in front of other comics. And I was like, and actually I do have a bit in vanilla, which says that people always, people always think I haven't had anal sex because of trauma. And it's actually because uh, when I was single in the nineties, people didn't really ask. Nobody asked me. I mean, I have found out since that a number of boyfriends had anal sex with other people. And I was like, but you never asked me. So I, I don't know if I'm uptight about it because I never had the chance to find out. Um, and that's another thing you people... start now but you know just leave it well, on the menu <laughs> no but that's another thing people are weird about with sex now so i've been married for almost 23 years so when people say about like why haven't you experimented well i'm, I'm with this bloke I'm, I'm with this bloke for 20 and if he doesn't want to experiment found... the experimentation ain't gonna happen you've found your groove haven't you that's it you've found your <laughs> for you too that's <laughs> Every now and then i say to him like shall we try this or that but he's not a particularly like he really dislikes how open I am about sex. Um, and we have quite a lot of philosophical discussions about how open I am about it in front of the children, um, of whether I am in, informing them or fucking them up, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I think I'm informing them. Yeah, um, I think, I think, so I'm from a background where my family were relatively not prudish, but there were things that you just didn't say or didn't talk about. My wife's family, probably very similar. And my wife and I both have an, a, an attitude of without being kind of gratuitous or crude, we will talk to our kids about it um, and be honest and open about it. Oh, I am gratuitous and crude. So um, I think we've got about <laughs> 10 minutes left because it's just flagged up. Oh, so, damn it. Even though... Right. There's only, yeah, even there's only two of us it's zoom the new zoom rules um but don't worry i think we could probably we've done we've done quite a bit we so did it again yeah but you know I'm what i'm like when i start talking i'll never finish no that's all right so would you say and i've hardly done any of these things about, i've written down that's all right you've talked about mental health informing the content of your comedy yes but does it does it negatively impact your ability to go out and perform comedy ever it hasn't. It's um, impacted my ability to write sometimes. Yeah. Um, and one of the wonderful things about having known Frankie for a very long time is I can just text him and say, I'm crazy today. And he's like, yeah. okay, fine. Um, but actually it improves my gigs, which worries me. So I've had a couple of breakdowns. There was a, I had a big nervous breakdown. I'm kind of vague about when it was about 10 years ago i'm a vague because a lot of the uh main players are, are still around that's the problem with social media really um and actually and i also had a small sort of um mental health blip at the end of last year and my gigs are better during it i think because i'm running on adrenaline and i'm running on wanting somebody to help me so there's a certain air to my comedy which is oh my god <laughs> won't somebody listen to me won't you know this is all the ways that i'm fucked up and, and my eyebrow being raised slightly higher than usual and then when i'm happy i want to be at home watching films with my kids i don't want to be on the motorway i don't want to be manic i don't want to be dysfunctional um and that can be really difficult and i know there were times uh, with writing especially where I would actually get myself into a dysfunctional place on purpose so I could then spend a day writing jokes. Okay. Um, 
does comedy help though do, do you think the flip side is if you're in a bad place and you do it and you, you're doing well with comedy because it's what you said you're running on adrenaline do you then can you link improvements to your mental health your mood or whatever to doing well with comedy um no not with i'm trying to think of the, the, the that the breakdowns i've just mentioned and neither of them were improved by comedy mm. um i have been able to deal with things in retrospect so i think not in the moment but in retrospect so for instance um i was asked to write about postnatal depression comedy as a comedy uh, i was asked to write it I, how do i phrase this i was asked if i would be able to write about postnatal depression in a comedy script and my mm -hmm. instinct at the time was no my daughter was still quite young um and then when i actually started thinking about it i realized it was a much better way to talk about it and to tell a child that you didn't love them when they were born is really shit especially when it's actually a chemical imbalance and it's got nothing yeah. to do with emotions to say to your child you screamed so much as a baby we wanted to leave you in a shoebox on the driveway she got it mm. like and it was actually way easier to talk to her about it by a comedy and so i exercised that and, and being able to talk about really horrible things in a really flippant ridiculous way um so in that way it helps it helps in retrospect it helps in laying it all out um but not i think in the actual moment so there's there's a running joke with comedians that when something terrible happens to you everyone will go oh it'd be good material be good material or was like go away because it isn't good material at the time at the time it's yeah. just trauma and there is a definite process of changing it from trauma to material in fact i've got a line in my show where i say do not worry about listening to this story this is very much the last stage of grief you know how it goes anger acceptance one woman show um, <laughs> and even though that's a line in the show it is true it's that it, true. It, and it's, it, that's why it's funny that alchemy that's from funny like because that, it's true kind of, yeah absolutely that alchemy of taking something horrific processing it and then managing to produce something at the end that's going to inform, educate and amuse is... But not every everybody does. Some people write yeah. that show way too early. I have sat through shows where I'm going, mate, I'm not your therapist. I've paid Come money for this. Yeah. yeah. You yeah, should yeah. be paying me for this. Um, so last question then. Okay. And this is the last question I ask every guest. And so far, I think only one person has surprised me and gone the other way. Uh, if I could take away all of your mental health issues, uh, wave a magic wand, they're gone, they're never coming back, you're on an even keel for the rest of the life, but the price of that deal is you never perform or write stand-up again or comedy again. Is that a deal you would take? I see performing stand-up as one of my worst mental health issues. So, so you can actually you you can leave me with the mental health issues and just take away the stand-up. <laughs> That'd be fine. That wasn't the answer I expected. <laughs> Me, me, me being a comedian feels very much like an illness at this stage. <laughs> like, you know, I, am I still so doing this? Am I still pursuing this? Because somebody one day up, said that I was funny, so I have to still keep chasing the approval of strangers. So until now, we've had all but one yeses, one no, but you're saying... So I'm I choosing... Yeah, I want to keep the mental health issues... Yeah, I want to keep the mental health issues and lose the career in stand-up. <laughs> Thank you very much.
<laughs> so listen, this has been great. Uh, we are we are running short on time. Um, I'm really glad you did this. Um, you're one of my favourite people in the industry, and I don't mean I don't say that lightly because I wouldn't say that to everyone. All these um, jokes I wrote about my mental health, I didn't do any of them. Oh well, we could do another one at some point <laughs> when you haven't got anything to promote, but you won't want to then. Oh, I won't want to. I just <laughs> so use you. Up- I use you and abuse you, Graham. Excellent. That's what I live for. Um, so your next up special, hopefully, um, is streamable, downloadable from the 10th from the tenth of, of June. I keep forgetting with streaming vanilla. things that I don't have to point everybody at that one day that is no, going to so stay there. Time from them. It's yes. called Vanilla. It's fantastic. Um, uh, and and it's uh, not yeah, just I'm, about sexual assault. There's a lot of stuff. No, it's about really not. Mainly I, about music videos, but we didn't talk about that. My my daughter is now fifteen, and I think it's going to be the first stand-up that isn't Billy Connolly that I force her to sit through, but I don't oh, think no. I'll be forcing her. I think she'll be willing to. I think within two minutes she'll be hooked. So Maybe. Um, my my, my daughter's now for. 15 and she really likes the show. So Excellent. So thank you so much, Meryl. I'm sorry we've run out of time, but that's mainly your fault. It is. For talking so Always. much, but in a great way. Uh, <laughs> and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. There you go, uh, Merrill O'Rourke. Um, I think it comes across really clearly the extent of my comedy crush on Merrill. Um, she is one of the very few people whose opinion really, really matters to me. And I'm pleased to say, so uh, just a quick anecdote to follow this up. When Merrill was uh, leading the course that I did, um, I sort of admitted that I was a bit worried about being pigeonholed as an act as someone who only does smutty content. And she said, the thing is, Graham, you sometimes have to accept that. And actually, there's nothing wrong with being good at smart. You're very good at smart. You're very relatable. Embrace it. And since then, I have. Um, So thank you, Meryl. You've made me a better comedian, which is what your course was designed to do. So brilliant. Um, Reminder, Meryl's um, special is out on the 10th of June as it stands on Next Up. It's called Vanilla. It's fantastic. Um, if you're in the Leeds area, Merrill is performing at a gig I'm running on the 2nd of June at a tiny, tiny bar in Morley uh, called Seven Hills in Morley on the outskirts of Leeds on uh, the 2nd of June. Tickets are a tenner and you get a free drink with that, but the, the venue holds about 35 people if everyone sits on each other's laps. So, um, you know, feel free to to come along if you can, get tickets directly from the bar, um, and we'll be back soon with more episodes. I'm not going to let there be as big a gap this time, I promise. Take care, stay safe, and look after yourselves. Cheers. Bye. Sparks of Madness is a Gag and Bowman comedy production.